Well, as I said, what we're about to do, um, we really can't do. I, I mean, at one level, I want to do what I'm about to do tonight. At another level, I don't want to do it. And what I mean by that is this. Um, I don't know if it's better to give quick responses to these, um, if that helps or it hurts. I think it, uh, in general, will help if you remember this. If you find these not very satisfying, this isn't all that can be said about these things. Some of these things you may think, wow, that, I've never thought about it from that perspective. That's helpful. There's probably more where that came from. In other words, if I keep exploring that a little further, that, that's very interesting. I'd never thought about thinking of that defeater from that perspective. In some of these, you may think that's not a very satisfying answer at all um, because it's so superficial and cursory. Um, all I can say is I hope that this doesn't sort of have anybody walking out of here saying, well, I guess there really isn't a good Christian response to this. I think there really are good things that can be said and certainly ways that we need to live uh, that can deal with every one of the defeaters. Some of them, uh, the personal aspect is more important, the way we live as individuals and as a community. For some of them, there's an intellectual side of it that needs to be talked about. Um, The one about, you know, how can we trust the Bible? There's just a little more stuff that needs to be said with that one intellectually, philosophically, theologically, whereas some of the other ones have a lot more to do with the way we live as a community. All right? So that being said, we're going to go through these. Now, again, like I said at the beginning, and I'll say it again if you weren't here Friday night, what I don't want you to do is to take this paper and say, finally, here I have all the answers to why all my friends are wrong. I'm going to send this to, you know, all of my non-Christian friends, or I'm going to Xerox this off and just start giving it to everybody. What I really hope this will do is it will help stimulate your thinking for the kinds of ways that a response to some of these defeaters might go. This really, take this more as these are some contours Uh, of the kind of response that you could give to these issues. And a lot of it is going to have to do with you sort of taking this and thinking about how can I say this in my own language? How can I own this? You're going to have to ponder some of these things. Um, But I I wanted to at least say a little bit about the various defeaters that we have identified. Okay? And one thing that I don't know if I do this, well, I, I think there's more that can be said about each of the defeaters in this regard too. Um, I really do think Christ has to be at the center of every response that we make to these defeater beliefs. I didn't necessarily work that out in every one of these responses. Some of them you'll see, ah, I see this clearly. In others, um, you could probably go farther in responding and particularly connecting Christ to some of these um, defeater ideas. All right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit these. I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. Um, I've got lots of notes here. I'm going to read some of these things, and I'm going to, you have this as a resource, and then we'll have time for some questions on this. All right? You ready? Strap in. We're going to end with, with some, a little more intense content that maybe we've had, and um, then we can continue to talk over dinner. So how about the idea of one true religion? That there's only, there can only be, uh, there, there can't be one true religion, that all the different world religions are various ways to God, and if you, if you think that your religion has the truth and others don't, you really are naive and you're arrogant and you probably are a dangerous person in our modern world. Now, this basic idea is that all the various religions um, are merely different paths up the mountain, if you will. Sometimes this illustration is used that there's different paths up the mountain. Christianity is one of them, but so is Islam and so is Buddhism and various things. 
And so none of the world religions should, exclaim, should proclaim that they exclusively have the truth. Now certainly one thing you can say about that is if the Bible is correct in the way it talks about the creation of man, um, you should expect to find echoes of the truth in all kinds of cultures. So Christians do not need to show or need to try to contend that everybody is wrong about everything, right? And I think a lot of Christians sometimes feel like I'm not being a good Christian witness unless I show how everybody is wrong about everything. You don't need to say that. You should expect that people have various ideas of the truth, some that are better than others or closer to the truth than others, in all the various world religions and all the various cultures, not just because of the remnant of the creation and the sort of the echoes of the memories of the way things were originally, but also because God continues to give witness to himself throughout his creation and even in the conscience of man. The Bible says both of those things, right? But I do want to say this. The idea that no religion can have absolute truth, philosophically, is self-refuting. In other words, what you're saying is, there is the, the only absolute truth that is absolute is there is no absolute truth. Philosophically, this is one of the easiest of the defeaters to deal with. What you have to get people to see is they think that the only people that are being intolerant are people that hold exclusive truth claims. But that, of course, is itself an exclusive truth claim. Okay? Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, if you say there is no absolute truth claims allowed by any religion, the person who's saying that is themselves making an absolute truth claim about their religion, which is there is no true religion except the religion that all religions are equally valid. Does, Does that follow? What they're saying is the only truth is that all religions are true. And, of course, the question is, okay, if you claim to sort of have this perspective where you see this mountain and you see all these various people on the pass, how is it that you can arrogantly claim that you alone have a vantage point from which you can see that all these people that think they're following these religions are really merely different paths, but you alone are exempt from that? Your religion, that all religions are equally valid, is not one of the various paths. You claim that you actually have a vantage point no one else has. So at at its heart, while it seems that this is a very, very um, humble approach to take to religion, in reality, it's actually one of the most arrogant. What it says is no matter what all the various religions of the world say, they're all wrong and I alone am right. They really are compatible. Even if all the people that believe them and study them don't think so, they're just all wrong. And my superficial understanding of all the world religions is more true and more right than any of theirs, right? Now, see, now one of the things I'm doing in saying this is I'm saying to them, not so fast, that may sound good, but when you actually think about it a little bit, you end up putting yourself in a place you don't really want to be, which is a place of arrogance and a place of intolerance. What this says is, of course, is that everybody has the problem of intolerance, Some people are very overt about the fact that we believe other people are wrong. Other people try to cover it up and pretend that they think everybody's right, but they don't really believe that. I remember a few years ago, I was talking with some Belmont students at just sort of an open Q&A time, and I was saying saying something that ticked off this one guy, and I remember him saying, even when I was a blankety-blank Baptist when I was six years old, I would never say anybody was wrong about anything. And I said, well, do you think I'm wrong? And he said, no, I just think you're unenlightened. And I said, come on, that's an artful dodge. 
you think I'm wrong. And he said, yeah, I do think you're wrong. I said, okay, well, at least we can have an honest conversation now. And it's interesting how I got several emails from students that were so offended that I pressed him on that point. They thought that that was really inappropriate for me to press him that way. But it's like, look, what's the point of having a conversation where we can pretend that he doesn't think anybody's wrong? Of course he thinks I'm wrong. And he was very hostile and very upset. You could tell, you know, by his manner that he was, he was very upset, okay? So the problem is, how will you tolerate people? How will the people that believe all religions are equally valid, how will they tolerate people that don't believe that? Right? They, they have the same problem that Christians do and that Islam does and that other world religions have of dealing with people and having to live together in a world with people who believe differently. So what do you do about that? Well, to that, we would say as Christians that Christianity does actually provide resources for us to love and to tolerate people we disagree with. The gospel is the one truth that if you believe what it says... It actually has power to humble you because the, the key thing about the gospel is it's not something that you discovered and that you can pat yourself on the back and say, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm smarter than you or I'm better than you or I'm more courageous than you because I've given my life to this thing. No, the true understanding of Christianity can never lead to that kind of arrogance. Not only that, but Jesus himself models, Jesus himself models that he would rather die than exclude his first century enemies. Even as he's dying on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Not only that, but Jesus models for us that he would rather die than exclude his 21st century enemies, us. So I'm not saying that Christians are not arrogant and don't have the problem of how to deal with people who disagree with them. I am saying that rightly understood Christianity provides really unique resources for us to be both bold and humble about the truth of the gospel. Um, In other words, what many people think is the hope for religious tolerance in our world is less fervent belief. If just all of these religious believers would not believe so firmly in their belief, it would make the world a better place. We'd all get along better. In fact, what Christianity says is what the world needs and what Christians need is more fervent belief in the true gospel. If we had more fervent belief in the true gospel, it would go a long way towards helping us get along with people we disagree with. We don't have to hate people we disagree with. In fact, we shouldn't because the Bible, Paul tells us, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against any particular people. Okay? So a few, a few thoughts on that. And I, I gave you um, a little resource. If you want to hear a fuller version of some of that stuff, and I took a little more time on that one because it's one of the biggest ones. Um, I do have something at the, the podcast at RUF at Belmont. If you go to the iTunes store and search the RUF at Belmont podcast, you can find a fuller kind of hour-long talk I gave on this drawing from Tim Keller. Or you can read his book. His chapter in his book is excellent on this, especially these first seven. In a lot of ways, I'm giving you brief little things, but exhort you to look at his book for fuller responses to these. All right, that's the first. Second, how about a, how about a good, good God allowing suffering? Um, Now, again, remember when you're dealing with this, this one, there's a huge component usually of people's own experience of suffering, either themselves or friends or family. Um, And so you need to be very careful that we're not, we're never glib about talking about this. In other words, if you think that you have such a wonderful answer to this question, 
that, that you just feel like it completely resolves the problem of evil and suffering, I would caution you to keep your mouth shut because you probably don't have the biblical perspective on this. The biblical problem of evil and suffering is a problem for believers. If you don't believe that, read the Psalms. Solid believers in Jesus struggle with evil and suffering and with the reality of God's goodness in that. Believers in Jesus, strong believers in Jesus, do not walk around like this is really not a problem. If you just had the perspective that I have, if you just believed that God was sovereign over all things, then this wouldn't be a problem anymore. No, Christians never want to say that. As a matter of fact, Isaiah in chapter 5 says, Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And I know a lot of Reformed people that think because of their theology and their understanding of God's sovereignty that that sort of explains away this problem and it shouldn't really be a problem. To that I would say, no. It's a real problem. The second thing I would say about this problem is that Jesus has to be at the center of how we talk about suffering. Jesus has to be at the center of it. Here's what Tim Keller said, which I think is helpful. You can look at this paper here. If God himself has suffered, our suffering isn't senseless. First, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have to, at the same moment, have a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. You can't have it both ways. In other words, let me stop for a second. What he's saying is, so many people say, I don't believe in God because I'm mad at him. If he's, if he's big enough to be responsible and to be the, the brunt of your, to be the one who takes the brunt of your anger, then you have to consider the possibility that he might be big enough and transcendent enough to have reasons that you may not be able to understand. In other words, what you're asking people to do is to have a little bit of humility in the way they think about this question. Because suffering is one of those things that sometimes people feel that God owes me an explanation. And it's really quick, it's really easy to sort of put yourself above God. C.S. Lewis actually has an essay on this where he talks about God in the dock. In the English court system, the dock is where the defendant sits. In other words, we want to put God in the dock and say, answer. Now, of course, one of the things we need to say is that God comes, becomes incarnate, takes on human suffering, doesn't distance himself from it. But if you think that he's big enough to be responsible for suffering, you have to be willing to consider maybe he's big enough to have a reason for it that you can't understand. Be very careful as a Christian in thinking that you know what that reason is, either in general and definitely in particular. Be very careful about saying, well, I can figure out why you're suffering the way you are, and here's why. No, you do not have divine revelation to allow you to do that. You don't have a word from God or a passage in the Bible that tells you why Jeff Pardo is suffering the way he is. So you must always be very careful, and you must always keep Jesus in the middle of this. We have a God who has scars. And I, I tell you, we can do a lot of damage in trying to deal with the problem of suffering philosophically, abstractly, without directing people to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible gives answers to the problem of suffering that don't lead to other questions. It doesn't answer the problem of suffering in such a way that you will not have other questions. But the kinds of questions it leads you with are the questions of, God, can you be trusted? And the Bible does give us reason to trust God even in the midst of it, because God himself is with us 
in the midst of our suffering. Yeah. You got to talk up because that, that thing is so loud in the corner. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right, sure. Yeah, I, I don't have time to probably improvise any new thing. That's a whole, in some ways a slightly different question about, you know, is God a divine, is the cross divine child abuse? I know that, that issue, and I know that that is called, you know, by some, some people is called that. Um, I think that's a distortion of the full biblical picture, and certainly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and all of their cooperation. It's not that the Father punishes an unwilling Son. So, you know, um, and it, but, but, well, we'll get into this a little bit with the issue of hell. I think that touches on this as well, um, about God judging sin, and is that appropriate? Because um, that's part of what you got out about him punishing his, his own son. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, turn the, turn the next page here. Um, Christianity is a straitjacket as far as the way we live. Um, again, you know, the basic things that, that Keller says here, you really don't, you really can't go down the road of saying that there are no moral standards and that everybody's just free to do what they want to do. That may sound good in theory, but of course, what if your value is that hurting other people is, is, is your value, all right? You, you, you can't, nobody can really be consistent with this idea that there can be no standards whatsoever, okay? It may sound good. Usually people say that sort of thing because they want to be free to do what they want to do, but everybody has limits. Everybody has limits. At some point, it may be helpful, depending on the way, your nature of your relationship with somebody, to press that a little bit and get them to the point where they say, okay, I don't believe that anything and everything is valid. My friend uh, Hal Farnsworth at RUF uh, at Vanderbilt for many years, you know, when people would start kind of saying this sort of thing to him, that how can any religion tell you what to do? Everybody's really free to do what they want and to pursue their own sense of what's right or wrong. He would bring up the issue, of course, of female circumcision. Practice still goes on in some places in India. And there was hardly anybody that was going to hold on to them, try to maintain their idea that everybody's free to just pick their own idea. There, there are things that happen in our world that are just horrendous. And um, you don't have to go very far to get at that. Um, do we really want to say that there are no standards whatsoever? Um, it doesn't really work very, very, very long. Not only, so, in other words, if Christianity says, you know, says that God here has told us some about what it means to live and what we were made for, that's, that's not unusual. All kinds of people, everybody, in a sense, has an idea of what human flourishing looks like. And there are some things that fit within that and some things that are contrary to that. Christianity is no different than every other sort of worldview, if you will, and having some things that we say this is helpful or healthy and this isn't, okay? We're not unique in that regard. So then the question is, how does Christianity fit? Um, and, and, and really, what is this idea of freedom? The issue of freedom is definitely one that needs to be talked about. I don't have time to get into it all here. I'll just suffice to say that the Christian idea is that freedom is not being free to do whatever you want. It's the idea that you're free to be what you were made to be. 
that you find your dignity and your humanity and your sense of freedom by being who you were meant to be, not by fighting against that. Okay? Um, Keller's got some other stuff that he talks about here, which you can read uh, on your own. And he talks about if you're living for something, you're, you're never free. You can talk about being free all you want, but there's something that's controlling you. And, and Christianity is the one religion that offers a Lord who would actually die for you. Um, all right, the next one. Church is responsible for so much injustice. Yeah, in a lot of ways it is. But, well, well here's what Keller says. The solution to injustices is not less but deeper Christianity. And he points out there have been terrible abuses without a doubt. But it's interesting that some of the most vocal critics of Christianity, people like Nietzsche, people like Marx, actually derive the tools for criticizing Christianity from Christianity itself. And there's been some interesting scholarly work done on sort of the basis of Nietzsche and Marx's criticisms of Christianity, deriving their ideas of of what's wrong with Christianity from Christianity itself, in other words, from the prophets. And, you know, one of the examples that Keller talks about in his book is look at Dr. Martin Luther King. When he was, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't call people, and Keller develops this in his book, it's, you know, the white liberal churches were, were concerned about racism, but they didn't really have the resources to deal with it because they had thrown out the Bible. They didn't have any real external authority that could tell people you need to live differently. What Dr. King begins to do is he begins to actually call people to believe what the Bible actually says. In other words, he calls for more and deeper Christianity as the solution to the problem of the lack of civil rights, not less. Does does that make sense? In other words, some of the people that we would hold up and that a lot of people want to hold up is actually being different than the church and having more concern for injustice than the church does, where they got that concern was from the Bible. So it, it, all the more that it doesn't make sense when the church doesn't listen to its own Bible. And there, of course, there are times when we've done that, um, certainly. And again, this is one of those places where an apology and saying, you know, I certainly won't defend some of these things. But the one thing that's helpful about Christianity, as I understand it, is that it has resources for self-critique. In other words, when you know, the American South was defending slavery, the reason they were doing it was because they were listening to some parts of the Bible, but they were ignoring other parts. And the people that actually finally rose up and overthrew slavery were those who were reading the rest of the Bible. The idea is in Deuteronomy says that man-stealing is a sin, right? So... so you know, this, this issue is, is a lot more complicated than just saying the church rightly believing Christianity has led to all kinds of abuses. No, usually the church, when it's failed to listen to the Bible, is when these kinds of abuses have happened. And often the, the movement that's risen up to fight against these injustices has listened to the Bible better than the church. And that's, uh, that's worth talking about. Again, he's got some more stuff in there. How can a loving God send people to hell? I mentioned something about this. Um, and I'll just say, again, you should never talk about hell in a glib manner. Terrible, um, <laughs> terrible typo here. It says glob manner. <laughs> Don't do that either. Um, <laughs> but again, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. It says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, I long to gather you under my wings, but you were unwilling. Paul, in Romans chapter 9, says that I have unceasing anguish in my heart over my fellow countrymen. 
that they still are outside of Christ and his love. Don't talk about hell unless you talk about it with tears in your eyes. Okay? But then also consider this idea. Um, It is interesting to see how some cultures, some cultures would never want to hear about Christianity if it didn't have an idea of judgment. And and I just consider this quote from N.T. Wright from a recent book of his. Um, This idea that's so scandalous for liberal Westerners that God could be a God of judgment is, is seen very differently in many parts of the world. And N.T. Wright says this, the picture of Jesus as the coming judge is the central feature of another absolutely vital and non-negotiable Christian belief that there will indeed be a judgment in which the creator God will set the world right once and for all. See, a lot of people, when they throw out the idea of God's judgment, they don't realize that they're also throwing out the idea that anything will ever be set to right. And when they see what they have to throw away to hold on to the idea of a non-judgmental God, often they, they feel that maybe the, it's not worth it. I really care about justice, but I hate judgment. Well, you can't have both of those things, all right? He says um, the word judgment carries negative overtones for a good many people in our liberal and post-liberal world. We need to remind ourselves, though, that throughout the Bible, not least in the Psalms, God's coming judgment is a good thing. It's a good thing. Something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. Now, I don't know, you probably sang that and the trees of the field will clap their hands, but disconnected from what they're clapping their hands about. But it's the coming judgment, right? In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. And if you can't even consider that, it's because maybe you're so indoctrinated by your Western liberal culture that you can't consider the way other people in the world look at this issue. It's very easy for you from your easy chair to to attack the Christian idea of judgment. But if you were one of the oppressed, you would think about this very differently. In other words, it's worth pressing people sometimes that their objections to Christianity are often culturally relative and not as universal as they may think. And this is one of those, okay? Um, All right, science. The question really is, what can science prove? And when does science cross over into the area of philosophy, going beyond what it can really prove? And again, Keller has a great chapter in this. This is the defeater that you deal with and wrestle with. I want to actually move on because... Some of these, you can read his book and get a better thing than I'm going to say, but there's some of these that I'm going to give you my thoughts that aren't in a book you can read so easily. So, and the other one is this idea about taking the Bible seriously. That one, probably as much as any of them, maybe the science one and the Bible one, you probably need to do a little bit of reading about it. And there's, you know, Keller's book is a good place to start. There's other things, but here's the point I want to make about the Bible, all the issues of the Bible. Number one, about the sort of the reliability of it. The fact is increasingly in our world, academic scholars are more and more believing that the Bible is basically historically accurate. They may not necessarily believe what we in the PCA believe, that the Bible is without error. 
In other words, the idea of inerrancy, that maybe goes too far for, some, for a lot of scholars. Well, I won't say a lot, but some. But in general, academic Bible scholars are becoming more and more convinced, more and more convinced that the Bible is basically historically reliable. There's a number of reasons for that. Keller goes through. Um, the fact is, particularly the Gospels, you don't need to get people to agree that the Gospels are perfectly 100% accurate before you can talk about Jesus. But what you do have to get to with some people is that this is a basically trustworthy source about who Jesus was, what he was like, and what he said. And you have ample reason to believe that. Even people that don't believe Christianity recognize that there's ample reason to believe that this is a, a fairly accurate, quite accurate portrayal of Jesus. There's a number of ways I can get at that. It's a huge topic. Topic definitely for a whole a whole discussion. So, um, no, no, even the, even the resurrection. I mean, again, the, the the idea of the resurrection and the miracles that is really, you know, if you rule out of bounds the possibility of the miraculous, now you're into the science deal. That science sort of can prove everything, and if it doesn't fit within science, then it can't exist. People bring that into the way they read the Bible and say, obviously, the Bible can't, but Here's the fact. Listen, the, you know, the, the, earliest, the earliest Jewish objections to Christianity included the, did never, ever try to deny that Jesus did miracles. In other words, what they did was they said he went down to Egypt and he learned how to do witchcraft. But none of the, none of the early evidence denies the miracles. You have to have something. You read N.T. Wright's new book uh, on the resurrection called Surprised by Hope. It's a very, it's a very, it's a very strong case. Um, unless you're philosophically committed to the idea that miracles can't happen. And now what you have then is really back to that science defeater. And do you really have a good basis for being philosophically committed to the ideas that miracles can't possibly happen? The other thing is not a lot of people are that, are that philosophically enamored of science that they think that it can prove everything. Um, all right, so the, that's the one issue. The Bible is basically reliable. I listed a couple things here. A lot of recent books doing really good work in this. Keller's thing is a really good place to start. Um, There's all kinds of things in the Gospels that are really only explainable if they're actual eyewitness accounts. I mean, for instance, we don't know any, there is no ancient literature that narrates stories and includes little details, like how many fish were in the nets. It's really not until 18th, 19th century that people begin to write novels where they include that kind of detail. The Gospels the Gospels are not myths. Nobody that understands the ancient world and ancient documents would argue that. Now, there are a lot of people that would argue that because they don't really know what they're talking about. But this is one of those issues where if you do a little investigation, and I would suggest starting with Keller's thing, you'll find that there are ample reasons to believe that the Bible is basically reliable and can give you at least a taste of who Jesus is as a place to start. All right? Um, there's a, lo- a lot more, again. But let me, let me hit a couple more of these. 